Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, first seven verses, and then followed by verse 22. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. Yahweh, your God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that Yahweh made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. Yahweh spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between Yahweh and you to declare to you the word of Yahweh, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then in verse 22, it says, These are the commandments Yahweh proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that your word has the authority it has in it because it is your word. We ask that you would use the person of the Holy Spirit to impress our hearts to listen well, to desire to please you, to apply that truth in our lives this day and this day forth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the <clears throat> title this morning of this morning's message is, Is Spiritual Adultery Cheating on God? It's a serious title that deserves a serious approach, a serious examination. In the takeaway, uh, in fact, if you'll notice on the back where the outline is, the sermon outline, I've given you a lot more material, a lot more text than I normally do, because I want you to be able, when it comes time for the application, to both uh, be able to just read it and not try and write it down, but also to have it with you as a reminder throughout your week. But as you read the takeaway today, what we should be leaving here is, in answering the question, is spiritual adultery cheating on God? The answer is yes, all caps, exclamation point. Allow your heartbreaking thought of cheating on God to motivate you to pray each day for his grace to provide fidelity, that's faithfulness, in your relationship to the one who redeemed you out of slavery. I can remember as a young man being exposed to the gospel with my ears finally opened by uh, the good Lord at the age of 23 and somebody telling me that, <clears throat> that uh, the criminals that I was booking into jail as a police officer had as much right and access to God as I did. I was taken back by the fact that, why would they get it? I've been trying harder. They obviously haven't. They're the ones going to jail. I'm not. 
And there's a reality that you are more like the criminal than you are like Jesus on any given day as it relates to the temptation to sin, to actually fall to sin. And it's realizing that that humbles us into realizing, wow, this is talking about spiritual adultery. I would never consider such a thing in my physical life with the relationships I have, particularly my wife, and yet spiritual adultery with, against my God? It's a serious topic. In the Old Testament, we see the relationship to God and his people used in an analogous or a comparison-like way of describing a marriage. And thus, I thought it appropriate to find out what the, the people who take surveys said and what they got as responses back or what are the, the top reasons why at least Americans fall to adultery. I picked, there was a, a listing of 13, I picked seven of them for today. See if you can listen to this and go, oh, I've seen this or whatever it is. I hope that we all process this. Here are the top, no, not top seven. These are seven of the top, I think it was 13. Number one, falling out of love. Like love is something you either fall into, which by the way is very American in thinking and very wrong biblically. All your rom-coms, all your romantic comedies on your whatever streaming network you have, they almost all are about falling in love. You do not fall in love. You commit to love. For variety. That one's wide open. Feeling neglected. Situational forces. If you would have known my situation, you would understand why I did what I did. To boost self-esteem. Out of anger. And then number seven, just not feeling committed. Interesting. That's our own culture that responded in those responses. Today, as we look at the passage, I want to set the stage so you can get an appreciation of what's going on. It's been a little while. Last week we talked about the law. It's a kind of a global understanding. Before we jump in here with God giving the law, we really need to understand what's going on because this picture we'll get will we'll draw our feelings in, our emotions, our minds, our thinking. All of that gets drawn into the, the severity, if you will, of what's taking place. The setting is of the this opening scene of the covenant stipulations. We learned last week that some of what the moral law being given in the Ten Commandments is, is they are covenant stipulations. If I'm going to covenant with you, God is saying as my people, this is what you must obey in the Ten Commandments. So we understand that. Today I, I asked Gerald to read Deuteronomy 5. And some of you may have been going, I thought we were in Exodus. Why are we reading Deuteronomy 5? Actually, I did have someone come up and actually ask me that. And I said, that's a great question. The answer is, 
Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Deuto is second. The last half of that is the, uh, uh, the word that means law in the original language. What it means by giving the law or the second law is the, all of those that were 20 years of age or older, when the spies came back from the land that they were supposed to go into and said, woohoo, 10 of them, excuse me, ten, yeah, 10 of them says, no, we can't go in there. And then two of them say, come on, we got God, we got to go in. For the punishment, those that were 20 years or older, their punishment was to wander in the wilderness as a nation and die off before God would allow those that were 19 and younger to go in. So when Moses is giving the law in Deuteronomy, he's the retelling of what took place in today's passage in Exodus. But he gives that extra descriptors here that help us realize some of the manifestations of what's going on, the, the dark smoke, the clouds, I, I should say smoke and the dark clouds, and, it's, and there's thunder, there's lightning. We are reminded of, of this even in Exodus 19, the chapter before where we started here. It deals with this in chapter 19, verses starting with verse 16. But before we get there, we know that for the people to come before God, Moses was told, what we learned was, ritually purify the people. Have them wash their garments. So as they stand before me, there's a sense of ritual purity. You can't stand in my presence with sin and not be affected by my presence. I, can't, I am an all-consuming God, thus the picture of fire. And yet, when you, in 16, you hear this, and this had to be ominous for them. Picture this, whether it's a, your movie scene that takes over in your mind, or you put yourself in the place, where would I be standing where would I be in the pack as this is happening? As this is happening, what would it feel like? What would, what would I sense? Listen to this in, in Exodus 19:6. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, and I want you to think about the thunders when you're on the top of the mountain. Not in a, we are flatlanders here. We hear thunder differently than up in the mountains. Up in the mountains, you hear it, it pierce your soul. You can hear it reverberate off of your body and the walls and the and the windows. You understand thunder differently than what we do at the, at the, as flatlanders, if you will, of the desert. There were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud tramp, trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Think about this. All of this is going on. It's overwhelming your senses, and you've got this trumpet in the background blasting. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Do you really want to meet God? You're only ritually cleaned. It's a picture of what one day Christ would do, but you know you stand with sin. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And then verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh descended on it from fire. In, I should say on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And we, we learned that that was more like the smoke of a smelting furnace. The idea is that this fire is a refining fire. It removes out the impurities, and you stand there knowing that you are a sinner. You are an impurity standing in the presence of the almighty, pure, holy, other God who knows no sin. The smoke went up like a smoke of, of a smelting furnace, 
and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It's interesting. Creation knows how to worship better than we do. The picture is metaphoric, the mountain shaking itself, not the people on the mountain. It's a picture of God's creation doing what God's creation is called to do. Tremble in the midst of this holy God. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. That piercing thunder that would shake your windows, that would shake your very insides. God speaks this way. Every word spoken as it reverberates through the area around you, the people around you, you all sense with great magnitude the presence of God. There's something interesting about this as well. You see, this last time that we saw this, where there, remember that we were told there's a hermeneutic, if you will, in chapter 3 of Exodus. A hermeneutic is just a special way of saying there's a way to interpret what we are reading based on what God gave us to understand. And there's something unique that happens in chapter 3 of Exodus. First, Moses sees the burning bush, and he sees it's not being consumed. So it gets his attention, and he walks over to it. And we're told that in the midst of the flame is the angel of Yahweh. Well, we saw the angel of Yahweh, if you were here, uh, as far as uh, Genesis 16 and dealing with Hagar. We saw that, that there was an interaction, and Hagar could see this person. This person took on human form. That should be our first clue that something unique is going on here. And then in chapter 3, what happens? The angel of the Lord is referred to as God. The angel of the Lord is referred to as Yahweh. The angel of the Lord is asked his name. What am I going to tell you or tell the people of Israel? What name do I tell them you are? And he says, Eyah, Asher, Eyah. I am who I am. He identifies himself as what we know Jesus identified himself in the New Testament, in the book of John, I am the great I am. Yahweh is the self-existent one. This person, this angel of the Lord, the one who is going to be speaking here is Yahweh of the second person. This is Christ himself. The one who delivered in the Old Testament the people out of physical bondage to Pharaoh is the one who, ta- who delivers from the bondage to sin in the New Testament. You see the consistencies. It might be challenging if this is the first time you've heard this. Jesus is barely, tangentially in the Old Testament. Certainly you're not suggesting he is the one that saved the Israelites out of Egypt. And to you, I say boldly, yes. And if you doubt me, look at Jude 5, because I seem to be in pretty good company, because Jude 5 says it was Jesus Christ, speaking to the Jewish people, that delivered you out of Egypt. He says it boldly, and thus I am called to say it boldly. And thus we understand, we make more connections. Of course it would be Christ that would do the work that we see in the New Testament because he is the God that delivered the people in the Old Testament. Again, there's consistency, there's congruency is the fancy word that the theologians like to say. 
But there's something going on. The last time we saw this, and we, we were told that in chapter 3, that, and, and later on, that the, the angel of the Lord leads the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt by way of pillar of smoke during the day and pillar of fire. He protects them at night. But at one particular scene in chapter 14, you see both fire and smoke at the same time. Otherwise, you only see one or the other. The day determines it. If it's daylight, pillar of smoke. If it's nighttime, it's pillar of fire. But what happens in Exodus 14? I turn your attention to Exodus 14, 23 to 24, so we can get an idea of what the Israelites, you putting your place in, yourselves in the place of Israelites, would be thinking, you went through this, you experienced this, this is the God that you know. Exodus 14, 23 to 25 says this. This is the, the Egyptians pursuing the Israelites who God has commanded Moses to set out his, put out his staff that the, the, the waters of the Red Sea would be parted. The, they are walking through it, and now the Egyptians are pursuing them across this now open channel of the Red Sea. And he says this, The Egyptians pursued them and went in and after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horsemen, his chariots, excuse me, horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. And if you are reading from the ESV, the next word will say clogging their chariots. And when we preached the chariot wheels, when we preached, when I preached on this, I pointed out to you that this word in Hebrew, Hebrew, actually more refined, it says more specifically, it's not clogging, it's the change direction, from this direction to that direction. I don't know how many of you had siblings or you participated as a young kid in making a goat cart. No matter what the wheels do on the front, if the wheels in the back aren't securely on, if there's any room for wobble, doesn't matter what the front steering wheel is doing, telling it to do, where the tires are, are, are being steered, if those wobble, you're going to get this skidding back and forth. What we see here is God addressing the Egyptians with what he has done in past. We've seen this pattern. I will punish you with the desires of your own heart. He told the Egyptians to release my people and let them worship me, let them serve me. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians said no. They took a position of opposition. They took a completely opposing direction to God's law, God's word, God's command. And so what does God do here in the midst of this? It's a beautiful picture. He takes the chariots. The chariot driver is telling them, go this way. And the wheels on these chariots are moving about, slamming from one to the other, going in a direction other than what they should go. They are going in a direction that God is using to punish them. There is utter chaos, and God allows in the midst of the chaos. God calls for the waters to collapse on, on top of them. And they are brought, they being, Her excuse me, Pharaoh and the Egyptian warriors are brought to an end. Their own destruction. God gave them over to the desires of their heart. 
They understand when you see, this is the Israelites, you see the cloud of smoke and it's filled with fire at the same time. We're talking about judgment. This is how Yahweh comes to them when he gives the law. You're hearing the law as Israelites, and you're seeing Yahweh in the way he last demonstrated himself. He came in judgment, and you're going, oh, this can't be good. This is the best news. Yahweh is our God, and this is the most terrifying news. Yahweh is our God, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is able to judge all those who stand in opposition to him. Now. Armed with this understanding, armed with the the natural manifestations of who he is in the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the smoke, the dark clouds, now let us take up what takes place. And we realize that this is the second person of the Trinity speaking. It says this as we look at bullet point one, who he is, and we'll be looking at The uh, 20th chapter, verse 1, and and then the first half of verse 2, it says this, And God, the Hebrew word, as I remind you, is Elohim. It means mighty one. It's synonymous with deity. But he's going to refer to there being only one true deity. And God spoke all these words. He is speaking not through Moses here. The mediator, as we read in Deuteronomy, as Gerald read this morning, the mediator is doing the work of standing between God who is announcing from his mountain and the people who are behind them at the base of the mountain. And Moses is standing in between a very visible mediator. Remember, Moses is a picture, a type of the mediator of Christ Jesus in the New Testament. But Moses is not being the one that God is using as the instrument to speak. God is speaking in the Ten Commandments directly to the people, and this is terrifying for them. He says this, And God, Mighty One, spoke all these words, saying, I, and in the Hebrew it's emphasized, I am Yahweh. Now, there's a ton wrapped up in this understanding. He uses the word, the name, the title that he gave the people when Moses asked them in chapter 3, what shall I tell them is your name? And he says, Yahweh. He's using the name as a means of grasping his. He's saying, look, I'm your God. I am Yahweh. In this, there is an understanding that I am the self-existing one, That is above all other false gods. Thus, I am the only one who is creator. Thus, because I created all, I have authority over all. And you have seen that I have power over all. So when he announces his name, they would immediately understand he has all the power and authority to do what he says or demands that they do. But there's also the covenant aspect. When he identifies him in this fashion, he is identifying him as, I am the God that came to you and covenanted with your forefather, Abraham. I'm the one that which started this whole nation with Abraham, promised him that I would make him a great, a great and mighty nation, and I would use this nation to bless all the other nations. This is the reason why you should 
Why, you must do what I command you to do. And he says this, I am Yahweh, your God. It's interesting. I, I like to, I never was good at English. And then I had to go to seminary to learn two other languages. And all of a sudden I realized I had to learn English. I just faked it. I mean, I, I got grades because I could mimic, but I really didn't understand my own language. Now I'm fascinated by language because there's so much more that I didn't realize. There's so much more importance. The your there is called the possessive determiner of belonging. And you're going, woohoo, what does that mean? That means that somebody is doing the determining of possession. And it's Yahweh. He is saying, I am your God. He is making a declaration. He's not asking, hey, you want to be my, my, my children? No, he's making a very pronounced declaration. And they would understand he means no one else is God. You're God. I am it. I am alone. You're God. So we see and we move to our next bullet point, what he did. First, we know who he is. He is the, the God of the Israelites by way of creation, by way of choosing their, their forefather to start this nation. He is the one that has done something else here. First, we see, now we look at what he did. He says this, who brought you, fascinating. The English is terrible about telling us that the you is, is singular or plural. Is he saying you or is he saying y'all in the South? I thought for sure it would say y'all. He's talking to the whole congregation of Israel. He doesn't say y'all. He's the master preacher. He says you and everybody in the crowd, all the congregation, all the assembly of Israel would, would know that feeling. Have you ever had that feeling when the preacher sit, preaches and you're like, oh gosh, that's directly to me. Wow, that message hit me straight between the eyes. That's what he's doing here. He's talking to the whole body, and yet each one knows specifically, I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to you. They all sense it. He says this in 2B, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, please don't hear this as just a geographic location. We have preached through, we've gone through Genesis, and we've gone through Exodus, you have to understand when you read a book and you're moving along in the, in the chapters of the book, that everything that the book had to say early on brings with it the, its understanding. So you go, as you read this book, you go, oh, wow, there's so much more. I see. I have understanding. I get a visual of what he's saying. So it's not just geographic. That's not what he's getting at only. Certainly, it means a location out of the land of Egypt. But he's talking about Egypt in a couple of capacities. They are the super nation, the superpower of their day. That is the human superpower. But this superpower also, we know this by his, each of the ten plagues were specifically carried out with ten of the false gods that gave Egypt their power. They gave Egypt. And when I say false gods, you need to understand that I'm saying not just fairies. I'm not saying mythology. I'm not saying that. No, 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 no. I'm saying specifically willful, rebellious, angelic beings 
that have greater power than you and I. They are spiritual beings and have power in this physical world. With each of the false gods, he destroys them and says to the people of Egypt and to the rest of the world, but specifically to his people, I am the only one that is above all that is created, that I have created. I can pick these off one by one, and thus he did so. And he shows that no matter it, with it, whether you look at it as a super nation, this human powerful nation that is more powerful than any of the other nations, has the greatest army that could defeat any other nation at its will, the power behind that building up of that military, the evil behind it in the false gods, the fallen angelic realm, are nothing to Yahweh. He has demonstrated his power and authority over all he has created. And he continues on, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? This is important that we grasp this. The house of slavery was the house of oppression. They didn't just come out of Egypt as, eh, maybe they weren't as well-liked in the, in the economic system, in the ethnic system of all the people that were in Egypt. Oh, no. These were the slave labor of Egypt because they were dangerous to Egypt. There were too many so it says that Pharaoh enslaved them so that they could not ever overcome the people of Egypt. We see here, in this case, we be reminded that when Pharaoh wears his royal headdress on the top of the headdress in the forward position of it is the picture of, it's a figurine, it's more than a picture, is the figurine of the cobra snake. It's the picture. It should remind us immediately of the snake in Genesis 3. Pharaoh is the embodiment, the human embodiment of the oppressive one, the evil one, Satan himself. What's fascinating, I almost find hard to believe that I've never put these correlations together until having preached through Exodus. Think about this. Pharaoh was the son of Ra. Ra was the sun god of Egypt who had authority over the skies, the land, and the underworld. Get this. Listen carefully. You'll go, huh? Some of you have heard this many times. Some of you are new to this because you haven't been with us as long. He is the incarnate son of Ra. Sound a little bit like our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the incarnate Son of God. You see the counterfeit that Satan specializes at, that, that tries to bring down the uniqueness of our Savior. Oh, I've done that before. Yeah, I've got that. I had that in Pharaoh. That's not a big deal. It's disgusting, and yet it's the reality. And we have to recognize that reality of truth. Let's look now. We now know who he is, as explained through his name and titles, we know what he did. He brought them out of the house of slavery. Now let's look at point number three. Therefore, what our relationship must be. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, there is an expectation. That's, I'll say, more than an expectation. There is an absolute 
necessity that something be done by us because of who he is and what he has done for us. And I'm speaking figuratively and saying us because we know that this is the physical story of what takes place in the spiritual realm of concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done ultimately for us in redeeming us out of the bondage of sin. This was always designed to point forward. Again, we see in now in verse 3, it says this, you, still speaking as the master preacher in the singular, he says this, you shall have, the idea of having is possession, but it's not this, not in my hand, physical possession. What is the thrust behind this understanding is the possession in the heart You shall not possess other gods in your heart. You shall not desire to worship them. To possess them in such a manner that you replace me with them in your hearts. You shall have no other gods, small g. Again, do not think of the gods as fairy whatever. You know, something that is just a story. The gods that he speaks of that are false gods are the gods of the, the rebellious, willfully fallen angels. According to Ephesians, those gods are still here this day. Those gods still would like to see the downfall of mankind. They are created small gods. They have rebelled against God as human beings rebelled in chapter 3. They want to have power over and destroy the human realm and not allow any worship of the ultimate true God God incarnate, Jesus Christ. This is what we speak of. So when he says, you shall have no other gods, you need to have that idea, first and foremost, of willful, rebellious angels. But there's also the delusional human being called Pharaoh, who's buying his own media clips, his own news, news about him. He not only propagates that he is a God incarnate, I think he really believes it. This was a tough one for him to realize, ah, I guess I'm not. In fact, I'm I'm sure that wall of water that destroyed him and his army was a reality check for him. He's no longer. So we need to realize that there will be human beings in your life, delusional human beings, who will demand that you worship them. We must never worship them. And I might even switch this around. There will be delusional human beings, and those human beings will be us. For we will want to worship other human beings who are not God. I'm talking about today's athletes, the celebrities, the, this new category that is new to me, the, the internet influencers. We chase after these people, and and somehow we want to mimic them. We want to image them and what they look like, how they perform. It's, It's absolutely disgusting when we see it at the level of spiritual adultery. We want to be in their image? No. We want to be in God's image. We were, we were made as God's image. You might include in that list government officials at times. We don't even realize it. We get so caught up about what's going to happen in the next political cycle. Yes, we should be concerned so we know how to pray. But God is sovereign. 
If you worry to the point that that's all you're talking about or that's, the, that's your lead into anybody at the, the water cooler or when you meet, there's a problem. They've almost become or they have become a God to you. They occupy your thinking. But there's one last delusional human being that we need to focus on, and that's the singular you of you and me. Since the fall, remember the fall, Adam and Eve chose not to forsake taking from, or not, they chose to take from, I'll put in the positive, from the tree of knowledge and good. What did they do in that? When they took from the tree that God, uh, God called the tree of knowledge of good, they said, yeah, I'm not going to go at knowledge and good in your pace, and I'm not going to rely on you for telling me what's, not, what's uh, the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to go at my own pace. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be pick, eat, autonomous. We ourselves become the false gods at times. It's the one God that I can say, false God, that we are most prone to, even as Christians. It is a hard sin to break. We trust in ourselves rather than our God. So whether it be willful fallen angels, delusional human beings that say, you must worship me like Pharaoh, but maybe some government officials in our own government, athletes, celebrities, and internet influencers, or yourselves, we must not worship them. And he says this, You shall have no other gods before me. In the Hebrew, in a very wooden sense, if I were to read that to you, it says, before my face. Every translator has to make a decision. Either they will translate it into English, before my face, or they will translate it in my presence, or before my presence. The idea is, remember what happened in Exodus chapter 3. The angel of the Lord said, I'm going to work through you, Moses. I'm going to deliver these people out of your people, my people, God's own people that that he covenanted with. I'm going to deliver them out of bondage. How is he going to do it? He says, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be in your presence. This is new in Exodus. This is not what it looked like in Genesis. In Genesis, God came and went. In Exodus 3, we see a change. Something happened distinctly different. God has said, I will be with you. And he's going to be with them at this point as either a pillar of smoke leading them to the promised land, first Mount Sinai, or a pillar of fire by night. But ultimately, when they get there, we're going to read in Exodus that they're going to build a tabernacle. Why is their tabernacle going to be there? Because God says, I'm going to have a house in your midst. There is something hugely happening here, and God is saying, you can't have me in your midst. And false gods, I will not tolerate it. Jesus Christ died that we might have the Holy Spirit indwell us, that we might have the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit in us. We must not take into our hearts false gods. He will not permit it. We will understand chaos in our lives when we choose to do that. And it's God's mercy, if you will, as he allows chastisement upon us that we might realize I'm living in chaos. What am I doing wrong? What gods am I, am I worshiping and chasing after? Let's read this, these five facts about worship that are listed on your bulletin. If you have your bulletin, I would suggest you follow along with me. 
The remainder of this leading up to the end of the sermon here, the next few minutes is going to be out of this. This will move us more quickly through. Five facts about worship. Number one, human beings were created to worship the creator. He created us for a purpose, and that was to worship him. Two, it's a part of our being and, and naturally flows out of our beingness to worship. You can't change it. Sorry, and I hope you don't see it as a sorry, but it's, I'm going to say it. Sorry, you can't change your being. Thank God, because some of us would never worship if he changed it out of our being. But there's a challenge, and we'll continue on as we study further this, this, this natural flow. And number three, our hearts are not passive. Our hearts actively seek to worship God. This world will tell you that your heart is passive. That's the counsel they will give you. No, it's not. Our heart is always seeking, and it's unfortunately always seeking to worship. I say that unfortunately. Let's get on to point four. This component that would be our heart seeking and being active of our being is a part of God's wonderfully ordered creation that before the fall rightly caused us to exclusively seek after him. But we got a problem, and the problem is the fall. So what happens in number five? It says this. The real issue for all of us after after the fall is whom or what we worship. The first commandment is dealing with the whom. The second commandment, when we get together next time to study Exodus, we'll see that the second commandment deals with the what that we are worshiping. You'll see it deals with the idolatry, the idols. So we read on under, under uh, bullet point three, dealing with, therefore, what our relationship must be. Under point A, it says this, a covenant relationship is comparable to a marriage and demands exclusive worship of our Redeemer. That's what the Old Testament likens it to. The whole book of, of Hosea, the, uh, the prophet Hosea, is dealing with, he says to his own prophet, take a wife, and there's, dis, there's disputes on whether she is a prostitute at the time or he knows that she's going to be a prostitute. But he says, take this wife, Gomer, who's not going to be faithful to you. Take her and have children by her. And, you will, and he uses that whole dynamic of that story unfolding to say, this is me with Israel. You, Israel, you have played the prostitute. You have been the unfaithful lover. You have been the covenantal partner that has broken relationship with me and gone after false gods. He sees it. God puts it in a context of a marriage. And so we can see there's an analogous or a comparison to marriage in our relationship, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament to our God. So let's read the application. It's on your bulletin so you can take this home and be reminded of this. The application is this. This is a tall order. This is one that demands that we go to God daily and and ask for his grace in order to fulfill this order. In order not to cheat on God. I hope that just makes you feel dirty and disgusting because that's what it's designed to do. That's what I like. When I'm tempted to cheat, I want to put it in the context of I don't want to cheat on my God. Just like I don't want to cheat on my wife, I don't want to cheat on my God. I feel the filth of that every time I looked in the mirror. I don't want this. In order to cheat on God, in order not to cheat on God, you must exclusively worship Yahweh. You must not bow down or serve, which means worship, fallen angels or other human false gods. You must sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust him above all else, and look to him for every good thing while humbly and patiently loving him, fearing him, and honoring him with all your heart, 
soul, and mind. You must give up anything rather than go against his will in any way. We end with Jesus as the faithful bridegroom. We end in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. I'm going to turn there. You can choose to. I want you to see this picture. This picture that we saw developed in the Old Testament is carried through into the New Testament. It is identified just as Jesus was the I am of the Old Testament when they asked him, what name shall I call you? And we saw in John, he's the I am of the New Testament. Just as we saw as he's the Redeemer of the Old Testament, he's the Redeemer of the New Testament. We see that just as, it, as he, as, is, excuse me, Israel was married to Yahweh, I suggest to you that, that Yahweh, that picture of marriage, is of the second person of Yahweh, Christ. And we see that now, true in the New Testament, here as the bridegroom. And what is happening here, this is uh, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. This is the Apostle John being allowed to, to experience that which is yet to come by way of being brought into the future events, this vision that he sees. Like the roar of many waters and, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. And here we see, for the marriage of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? It is the Lamb of God. He was pictured as the Paschal Lamb or the Passover Lamb in the Old Testament. He is revealed as the Lamb of God in the New Testament. Do you keep hearing these consistencies? I love that we're in a gym and there's a line right down the middle. I think of my, as I'm preaching, I'm thinking Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. What I saw in the Old Testament in the physical, the spiritual reality is known to me in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is not the angry God and the God of the New Testament, the, the nice, merciful God. We see the consistency of God. We continue on. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that is the church, that is everyone who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and has repented of their sin and looked to Christ and what his work was on the cross and paying for our sins. That is who he speaks of when he speaks of the bride. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What a beautiful picture. This is the picture from Ephesians 5. The husband is called to sanctify his wife, and Paul is talking to the Ephesian people. Jesus Christ, as the bridegroom, sanctifies his wife so that the bride, the church, can come into the presence at the end of time and take part in the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great wedding feast, the purity that is pictured there is brought about by the grace that Jesus Christ extends to each of us when we cry out to him, Oh, Lord and Savior, do not allow me to fall to this temptation today. Sanctify me. Make me set apart, distinct from the rest of the world in righteousness. Let us be reminded that we are, not to allow, or excuse me, we are called to allow the heartbreaking thought of cheating on God to motivate you and me to pray each day for his grace to provide fidelity, faithfulness in the relationship to the one 
who redeemed us out of sin and slavery to it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave us your Son, Jesus Christ, as the faithful husband, the faithful bridegroom, the one who did what we could not do, the one who gives us the grace to do it now after we have bowed the knee and call him our Savior. Yours is an amazing plan brought about by an awesome God worthy of our exaltation, the person of your Son, who then in turn turns around is seated at the right hand of the Father and yet gives us the Spirit to indwell us. What an amazing salvation from the beginning of time that you planned. We thank you. We worship you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.